Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and our next guest is Roger Baugh, who joins us all the way from Paris. And uh, that's one of my favorite cities and is also the host of the 2024 Olympic Games. So, Roger, how are you and what are you doing in Paris? Excellent. Hey, good evening. Bonsoir, Chris. It's been uh, yeah, it's been good. I'm, uh, I moved here uh, last year uh, with my wife, Joanna. She also works for actually she works for Paris 2024. I'm doing some consulting. Um, so my, my wife and I and our two girls just picked up sticks and uh, it was a great opportunity for the girls because our girls are six and three to become bilingual and uh so yeah no we just took it and up we came that is fantastic i want to get into that a little bit more i was just in paris in december at the committee conducting interviews with the heads of the various functions and uh i had a ball we had a blast there in paris in december I actually saw that on Facebook and I was bummed that I could that I saw it too late because I actually saw you on Facebook in Paris. And I was just like, what? Ah, too bad we couldn't make it happen. Well, I hope to get back there again, maybe early next year so. um, after the whole COVID thing subsides. Yeah. Uh, we'll come back and we'll do another set of interviews and I'll make sure to look you up and we'll go get some Definitely. food. Definitely. And speaking of this whole COVID thing, I mean, what's the situation there in Paris right now? And you mentioned your kids are small uh, and uh, what's the situation there with school and all that kind of stuff? So uh, we entered the lockdown period in uh, mid-March roughly. Um, and we're just coming out of it now, um, with, um, phased openings. Um, so it was quite interesting. I mean, when you, when I look back at it, um, we were quite lucky in that we were able to go out shopping for, you know, for groceries and things like that. Um, we were able to take the girls out for exercising. So we take them to a local park. Granted, we have to have a permission slip that we printed off, um, but um, it was pretty good. Um, the and, and being in Paris for us, it was it, it was incredible that the essentials that they considered the essentials was our local boulangerie, our bakeries, our cafes, or our our uh, wine shops, and the grocery shops. So, and where we live, there's a wine shop just down the stairs to the left, and my local boulangerie just to the right. I, I can't I can't complain. For the girls, you know, it's obviously two people working from home, two parents working from home. It was a bit challenging because we also had to homeschool the girls. Um, and, you know, we were fortunate that the teachers here, they use Dropbox or they had a website that we could use to download lessons. Um, but then again, you know, taking a six-year-old and a three-year-old and trying to have them hold their concentration for longer than a half hour was quite of a was quite a bit of a challenge but yeah uh, same here and same here and i and i give mad props to the teachers um, absolutely the homeschooling thing no bueno yeah <laughs> now I, I i'm very fortunate we our our youngest child is actually in her freshman year at college and university so we don't have to worry about homeschooling our children but friends of ours who have, still have children in school just tell us about the enormous challenge it is particularly if you're working and uh, i assume you're working from home we are. Um, are the are the paris 2024 offices still closed they are um but you know i i, I give props to paris 2024 they've been very accommodating and understanding and very flexible for the staff um, allowing them to work from home 
obviously there's a lot of uh, Microsoft team meetings and stuff like that for them, uh, for my wife um, to do. Um, I have the occasional team meeting every few days um, or every couple weeks, um, but they've been very understanding with that. Uh, and I think with the schools being shut, they're, they're telling staff, you know, don't really come in unless you have to you know, prefer for you to work at home until it's really a lot safer for you to come in. So they've been very good, very understanding and very supportive. I want to go back in time to, well, I guess 20 years or so ago. So (laughs) I know sometimes it's like, oh man, it's hard to think back, but I have found that with this whole COVID thing, that people are waxing nostalgic. And so it's <laughs> yeah. actually not a bad time to be thinking about the old days. And so, Roger, for you, I want to ask, you know, how did you get to Salt Lake? What were you doing before Salt Lake 2002? And how did you find yourself working in the organizing committee? Uh, it's funny. I was just thinking about your intro into that question and the amount of conversations that I've had with people about the games because they've seen your podcast and, you know, uh, it's been quite, it's been quite a lot of fun. And I'm like, yeah, I remember that. remember that. So it's been quite great. Um, now how I got to Salt Lake, um, I've always been involved in the sports industry. Um, I was working uh, in my university's uh, Temple University in their athletic department um, in the sport business uh, marketing department for for about two years as a grad assistant. Um, then I went and did a, a stint with a minor league baseball team in Louisiana from an independent league, uh, and then. Um, Went and re- I guess I got involved with major events in the Olympics with 96. Um, so 96 was my first games. Wasn't there long. I was there for six months, maybe, uh, doing inscriptions or athlete registration like Jackie was doing. I heard on her podcast. Uh, so I was doing that for Atlanta. Um, and then from Atlanta, I went to, I broke off, um, you know, college student, just graduating, not a whole lot of jobs. So I went to teaching in the New York public school system for two years. That's where I get my respect for the teachers there. Um, but then I wound up getting a job with John Lawler, uh, at the Goodwill games when they were in New York in 98. Um, he brought me in, you know, um, no technology experience whatsoever. It just took a shot at me. And, and, and that's why I guess I got the event bug from, um, really, cause I really got involved in that one. Uh, then I went to Winnipeg, Canada for the 99 Pan American games, um, was there for almost a year. Um, and then, uh, after I left Winnipeg, uh, actually I got, I was interviewed, I found the slock, um, an interview posting on monster. Yeah, a few of that, yeah. And uh, my original interview was for a results manager role with Frederick, Frederick Koshowski. Um, um, but, you know, it didn't really go so well. He's looking for someone more technical or, you know, apps developer kind of guy that, can, that knows about regression testing, yada, yada, yada. Um, but he forwarded my CV on to Kelly Lawler. Well, at that time, she was Kelly Brown and she was leading up the venues bit of it and interviewed with her. And I met Kelly actually in Goodwill Games in New York. Um, And yeah, rest was history. She brought me in and I was like, all right, I'm coming. Sight unseen. She's like, you sure? This is Salt Lake. It's a lot different from New York or everywhere else you've been. I was like, yeah, don't care. Let's go. I'm coming. 
so yeah, so packed up my stuff in June of 2000, I think it was, and there, and there I was in Salt Lake City. So Kelly was right. Uh, Salt Lake, a bit different than New York or Philadelphia or these other places. So what did you think when you arrived here? First of all, stunning. Absolutely beautiful. I'm being a city kid, you know, tall skyscrapers, restricted space cars, you know, and crowded city, cities. Absolutely. Salt Lake was absolutely stunning. Beautiful. Beautiful. Snow-capped mountains, everything. Um, wide roads, no traffic, no sense of, you know, rush hour traffic. So that was a, that was lovely to me it's coming from New York City traffic. Um, and people were very, very warm, very hospitable to me. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, I, I loved Salt Lake. It was really, it was something that I really enjoyed Salt Lake. I, I have to admit, I really granted, you know, having to, you know, go get, un, weave my way through the drinking laws and having a sponsor and all that was new to me. Oh, you need a sponsorship to come in. Oh, what? Yeah. But, uh, the, yeah. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I thought it was great. Well, it shows you how much a uh, frame of reference can influence a person's opinion because you come from a big city, New York City, and you see traffic here and you think there's no traffic here and the streets are really wide. And at the time, the games were the games preparations were underway. There was a lot of construction on mm -hmm. the roads and the locals here were just complaining constantly about how bad the traffic was <laughs> because of all the road construction. <laughs> so to hear you come in from New York and say, oh, the traffic's awesome. And we're all sitting here thinking this traffic is terrible. You know, it's just know. all about your point of view, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I was I was I was laughing when people were when, like you said, when people were complaining, oh, it's just so much so slow. And then just I was like, you have no idea. You have no idea what traffic's like. And yeah, I was just laughing about it. I thought it was funny, but uh, yeah, perception's really, it's really something. So Kelly Brown brings you in, in the area of venue technology. So what specifically was your role there? Did you have specific venues that you were looking after? You know, just kind of give us a sense of what, what your day-to-day -day life was like in venue technology. Right. So I was, my actual job title, if I remember, was a senior systems analyst. Um, but essentially, I was a venue technology manager. That was my role. Um, and it was being more, it's, you know, project management, bringing all the various stakeholders together, understanding their technology needs, their requirements, working with our telecoms guys um, and putting together how we're going to deliver the technology at the venue from your date, your phones, your computers, your printers, to the scoreboards, the video boards, to, you know, working with Seiko, our, you know, the, the time scoring partners um, at that time, how we're going to get all their intermediate points and things like that on the, on, on, uh, on the courses. Um, my specific venue was Park City Mountain Resort with Chris. And, uh, so, uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, he was a great guy to work with. Um, and I started off cause I think I was, I'm not sure, but I thought I would, I might've been the third person as part of Kelly's team. Cause Chris Chip Suttles was there before. Um, I know he was working with them, uh, with Kelly and then I came in. And so I kind of picked up a lot of other things between the three of us. And then we started building up the team. So I was doing, I had a lot of the 
the mountain venues, um, more like, you know, Utah Olympic Park at start, Park City Mountain, a little bit of Deer Valley. Um, uh, and then what was it? Heber? Is that Heber in Biathlon? Yeah, Soldier uh, Hollow. Soldier Hollow, that's right. Uh, so I was doing little bits in here and there. Um, but like I said, I was there in 2000. So the ramp up of getting staff on happened quite quickly. So I started handing stuff off kind of, kind of really quick. So, but for games, I was at Park City Mountain Resort. All right. Fantastic. Roger, I know you came prepared. You've made notes. I want to make sure we get to your stories that you have identified. So I want to get right to it. Any of the stories you got listed there, uh, whatever you want to start out with a funny story, an inspiring story, a challenging uh, time. Okay. It's kind of, all right, let's start off with a a few work related stories. um, And then we'll get to the other ones, which are a bit, uh, a bit can be a bit messy for people. Uh, but it's been quite fun. So I think one of the best stories I had um, was during our, te- we had a test event in Park City uh, at the mountain resort for, uh, I believe it was for snowboard and giant slalom and um, uh, snowboard giant slalom. And so there was this, I mean, we had issues with the results and timing system from the start, from the get-go, it was not a good test event for us. Uh, I mean, to the point that I was planning doing a man, a man-made event on Mount Hood, because that was in order to prove that the system works. I mean, that's how bad we had we had a day. Um, so we get we finally get through the half pipe, and we're about and we're in the middle of doing the snowboard giant solemn. That particular day, we had. Uh, Enrico Frescari, who later became my boss at Torino for the 2006 Winter Games, he came there as a visit. Uh, I believe there was also Mitt came down, Frazier came down, uh, and I think there were some people from the U.S. House of Representatives, um, more like with the appropriations, they want to see what was going on. And so we're sitting there watching, we're watching the event. And then there was a break within the event and we're like, what's going on? And this break just seemed to go longer and longer and longer. And then all of a sudden I'm standing there next to Alice, Dave, Kelly, Mitt is not too far away. Um, Frederick, I think was there, Bob Cottom. And on my radio, I hear Roger, we have a problem. I'm like, okay, what's the problem? The start gate is on fire. I was like, wait a minute, the start gate is on fire. And this is coming off of my, my chest pack. I was like, uh, so I got people turning in, looking at me, Alice, Kelly, like, what's going on? I was like, um, let me, I'm going to have to take this and go into a closed area. I'm like, what's going on? You say the start gate's on fire. They're like, yes, that's the problem. I was like, okay. Uh, so I get to Chris. I'm talking with Chris and I'm talking with Karen, our sport comp manager. And uh, I'm like, guys, we have an issue. The start gates are on fire. That apparently it went on fire. So do we have any other start gates somewhere? Do we have any spare start gates? Because we're in the middle of a World Cup. No, the nearest ones are in Heber, 40 minutes away. I'm like, oh, no, 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 this is not good. And uh, so people are obviously, questions are now starting to come from everywhere, what's going on. Later on, my headset, I go, I go, run, I go up, I take the lift, go straight up to this top, to the start. And I'm like, guys, what's going on? Do we have the thing sorted? They're like, yeah, we figured it out. The battery shorted and smoke came out and someone thought it was on fire. So that hence this whole star gate's on fire. I'm like, okay, can we, can we fix it? Can we get it? Can we do a manual gate release something? 
Yeah. We, so we find we did, I think we did a manual gate release and we were able to finish off the competition. But as I said, it was so bad, the results of that and how we looked that we were starting to plan for an event on Mount Hood. Well, it could have been worse, right? It could have actually been on fire. And then what do you do? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it could, have, it could have, but uh, yeah, I'm just, then that, you know, that goes to show that, you know, you have to be careful what you say on the radio and how people perceive things. Cause all, all it was, was a short. So some smoke came out of the, out of the box and people thought it was on fire. And next thing you know, people are rushing around. Do we need to call the fire department? Da, da, da. Okay, let's go back to your list here, Roger. What else you got? Uh, this one, it was at Games Time. Well, no, this one was – this is at Test Events as well. Um, we So we had – we were able – this after the Stargate issue, after that test event, we were able to find another event. It was a master's event. So, um, so the, obviously the competition is a lot – is a lot – is radically different from what you get from a World Cup. However, we had to we had to prove to the IOC and to the and to the Federation to FIS that what our system works that it can perform. Um, so we started doing this event. It was around March, mid March, if I if I recall. And for some reason, it started getting unseasonably warm, and so the snow started melting. And obviously our cabins, our scoring cabins and office cabins are on a hill. So gradually, day by day, we start seeing the cabins start to tilt. And we start seeing in the snow, it's starting to slide. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So every day uh, from then on, I found myself taking a jack and resetting the, the, the stands, the pliss for the cabin in order so it's level. It's not sliding. Um, so, yeah, so I learned how to jack up a cabin. That wasn't in the job description, I imagine, when Kelly offered you the position. No, but I've done, you know, working in minor league baseball and independent system, I've done some stuff that you would never thought was in your job description. But, you know, you get you when you had that experience, you just, you know, you now know, you know, there's just some situations you just have to get your hands dirty and do it. And so, yeah, so that was part of that. Um, and then I think there's a, let me see, uh, oh, where is it? Where is it? You gotta forgive me here. Uh, okay. Now let's get to a couple of, I think these were quite funny and, and I know for sure, uh, Crawley was, had, was involved in some way is more from a notification perspective, but so during the games, obviously after nine 11, Security as a, is at an all-time high at the venue. Um, very tight, you know. Secret services everywhere, everywhere and nowhere, you know. And um, the we had, and so in the broadcast commentator cabins, there was one particular cabin that was sealed off, and we and only certain people knew about it. Um, within the team or the venue managers for, you know, the operational managers knew about it. And we were told, you know, inform your staff, this particular cabin do not go into whatever you do. Don't go into it. Okay. And I, I knew why. Um, and we had, so you see so your audience knows it was secret service snipers. Okay. And so I go in and I don't tell my guys who's there. I just say to my team, I was like, listen, and my volunteers are like, guys, 
in this particular cabin, obviously we're pro- we're providing equipment to everywhere, you know, for the broadcasters to these cabins. But this particular cabin, just don't go in. Don't knock on the door. Don't be curious about it. Just take my word for it and stay away. All right. So, you know, it's like, you know, I had a volunteer that was, you know, you know, it's like a little kid that you say you put up a sign, don't touch. They go and touch it anyway. Okay. So I had a volunteer that uh, was like this. And so he decides to go up and just open the door, not even knock, just open the door. All right. Lo and behold, door opens, the snipers turn around, guns drawn right on them. Right. Because they don't know who's coming up because this is supposed to be sealed off operationally for them. So guns drawn. Boom. They're thinking my guy actually. Yeah, I don't want to say it, but he almost pissed himself (laughs) because he's got these guns on him. And so um, Chris gives me a call, gives me a call, actually. And he's like, Raj, got to talk to you. I was like, what happened? You know, that commentator cabin box that we weren't supposed to send anybody in. I was like, yeah, well, one of your guys just went in. I was like, oh, no, what happened? And he told me what happened. My volunteer comes back and I'm like, I'm so I'm sitting here laughing. I can't be mad, but I'm just laughing. And uh, I was like, so what'd you find? He's like, what are you talking about? I was like, what did you find in that cabin? I know about it. So what'd you find out? He's like, I don't ever want to go in there again. I was scared beyond belief. I don't ever want. I was like, all right. That was one of my funnier ones. That's a, a lesson learned the hard way. Roger, I want to come back to this 9-11 thing um, yeah. because I've interviewed a couple of people, uh, Deirdre, Donna, that were from New York. And I mean, that was a that was a horrific day, mm. but an added layer, I think, of challenge, difficulty uh, for those who came from that great city. So tell me what that day was like for you, uh, Ooh, finding out and then just seeing what happened. Um, that was a hard day. That was a hard day. Um, waking up in the morning, you know, I'm about ready to go to, I, I don't turn my TV on in the morning. I was like in a rush. So I get to the office. Um, so the office eerily quiet for like eight o'clock, nine, you know, eight thirty, whatever it was, it was like eight o'clock eerily quiet. I don't know what's going on. And then I see on, you know, TVs within the office, what happened? I'm like, you got to be having me on. So first thing I do, I call up my, you know, I get on the phone, calling New York, calling my parents, you know, my friends. I'm like, you know, all the systems are blocked, obviously. All lines of communication are just down. You just can't get in or out. So, you know, the word comes in, people go home, they shut the office, we go home. And I just sat on my couch. Actually, no, I didn't sit on my couch. I just laid on my couch in awe. Mouth just dropped. And I was just like, you know, I, I can't believe what I'm seeing because I remember as a kid, there used to be Pan in the back in the day, there was Pan American Airlines. Pan American Airlines used to run a helicopter trip from JFK to the top of the World Trade Center. So that was, you know, that's one of my vivid memories of getting on a helicopter, going up with my dad and going up to the top of the World Trade Center, and then you work your way down. But it's also, you know, going out at you know going out shopping or going with my meeting my friends downtown you see these you see the big skyscrapers i lived in queens so driving into manhattan you know they were always there they were a fixture you you just and 
So yeah, to watch those go down the way it did, I was just, I, I was shocked and just stunned. Um, and unfortunately I lost a few friends in it, um, that were working that day. One, um, one of my buddies was an actual firefighter and he was on his way up, uh, when they came down, um, guy I played in from high school. I knew him from high school. We played sports together. Um, there was an, uh, another buddy of mine. He was at work. Um, and you know, came down and he was in it. Uh, number of my, I had a number of my high school buddies were, for, were with the police or with the firefighter with new, with F with, uh, New York fire department. So, and they're telling me their stories. One of my, a really good buddy of mine from high school, he, he was actually caught under rubble. Um, and he was saved just because of, there was an awning, a cement awning from another building over him. So when it came down, a lot of the rubble also protected him that landed on that, which protected him somewhat. I mean, he was still encased in the stuff. They got to drag him out. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, he was telling me the story and it was like <sighs> rough. Um, and then it was not too far long after they opened up the airspace again. I went back to New York on a holiday and we actually, and being in Queens, I, uh, my local airport is LaGuardia. And, uh, so we're the route we took in, you can usually come from the Northwest, which is over what was Shea stadium, you know, city, city field now, or you come down Manhattan Island and then cut across East that particular night. We cut across East, uh, over this, uh, over New York city. And that route took us over the world trade center. So, and I'm at a window seat looking down and it was just a big hole. I couldn't even look anymore. <clears throat> wow. Roger. Um, I, I apologize. I touched a nerve there. I didn't mean to. I, that's all right. No, 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 that's all right. Um, it's, you know what? It's what happened. Um, I think there was, I can't remember her name. There was a young girl at Slock from New York. Um, maybe Donna would have known her. Um, she had a brother that was with the fire department. And uh, I think the story went, he was out. He he had the day off that day. And um, he gets the call. He goes in. But when he gets in, when he gets to his truck, there's no one there. And that's when the buildings <clears throat> had come down. And, uh, yeah, for him, his whole crew was gone. Can you ask? So, yeah, it's just rough. It's unfathomable. Um how do you pick yourself up from that? You know, the, the committee, there was a question at the time, you know, well, will the games still go on, you know, the, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, there was some calls to maybe cancel the games. Um, uh, but they did not. And we plowed ahead, mm -hmm. but, but that's not easy. Right. When, when your mind is, yeah. is, uh, is thinking of other people and, and, uh, other situations, but eventually the games were, they were put on and yeah. we've had several people talk about that opening ceremony and how poignant that was. Um, 
and really an announcement to the world that, you know what, we're back. To be honest, I didn't, I was too busy up in my venue, so I didn't really get to see the opening ceremonies, but I did hear about it. Um, but I think, you know, it wasn't just opening ceremonies for me personally, because being a New Yorker, it was the people of New York that actually, you know, when they picked themselves up after that and took themselves right back to work, not, you know, when they could taking themselves back to work, getting on with their daily life, you know, that to me was more of a, of a wake up call to the world to say, Hey, you know, we're back. We're not going to let this hold us down. Yeah. That city was defiant in its, um, in its stubbornness to say, you know, we're, we're not going down. Um, That's New York. Absolutely. Absolutely inspiring to see. Yeah. I don't want to keep on this heavy, on this heavy right. stuff. Uh, no, I'm the one that brought it up. <laughs> okay. I don't want to keep on this heavy stuff. Um, uh, before we get to our, our final assignments, any other items on your list that you want to make sure to cover? Oh, well, let's see. Um, yeah, you know, uh, there's all, you, you had a number of things. I mean, again, a number of, I got, I guess it's easier to say that, you know, Salt Lake was a once in a lifetime, amazing experience to be a part of. Um, if it was like a huge family, it didn't, didn't matter where, what department you worked at or what level job you had, whether it's entry level or you're an exec, you were, you, you looked at each other as, as equals, you know? Um, you can you can show up at some you can go out and show up at one place and just be perfectly welcomed like you're part of the family it was an absolutely incredible um organization to be a part of um the you know yeah there was so much to do that like you had co-ed softball nights on tuesdays and thursdays up at sugar house up in the university you had five cent wing nights at nickels you had um, the tailgate parties, uh, for you football games, um, you know, Porter call green street, um, where we tech had their drinks. Uh, some of us at tech had our drinks. Um, you can go anywhere and just feel, feel a part of it, feel the love from everyone and absolutely amazing, you know? Um, and for me, that was, uh, I guess a real big opening in terms of life outside of Canada and New York and the U S because now I'm meeting people from Germany, Norway, Spain, um, Japan. Oh God. The, the, the international flavor we had going through that, you know, Australia, the Kiwis, everyone, you know, the New Zealanders that came across after Sydney, absolutely amazing to be a part of that international community and to ingest all those different cultures and how they did things, how they talk, their accents. Absolutely. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Once in a lifetime. Uh, I've done a number of games after, um, you know, around the world. And to be honest, nothing, nothing has ever been the same level as, uh, in terms of friendship and relationships and 
with with Salt Lake. It hasn't been. If we could do it again, I'd go back. Heartbeat. Well, I hope we get an opportunity to do it again. You know, they're interested in bidding for a games, maybe 2030, 2034. And I really hope that that comes to pass. It's interesting that you mentioned the diversity. We did a podcast not too long ago with uh, Natalie Moldover from yeah. Technology. She yeah. mentioned on that. She reminded me of all the flags from all the nationalities that we had in technology, uh, 22 different flags there. What, what was something that you learned there in Salt Lake that uh, has helped you throughout your career? You know, how did those games in Salt Lake help you both personally and professionally? Going out and living abroad, you learn how to assimilate. And you know, acclimate yourself to what's going on. You you learn to really absorb and take in what that what the culture that you're living in, take it in and make it a part of you, in order to help advance. You know, to build relationships abroad. You know, with foreigners. Um, so you know, I you know going to Doha. You know, and being able to work with you know. For the Muslim community or the, you know, the Arabs and the Qataris there, um, going uh, to Italy, Alice had recruited me and brought me into Torino and, you know, getting to learn the language, the Italian language and being able to speak it or try to speak. It got me so far with respect with the, with the Italians that, they made me part of their family, you know, inviting me to their house and, you know, meeting their parents and, because they saw me make the effort to try not to think it's all about English or, you know, this is how we did things in previous games and this is how it should be done. It's understanding the local culture and how we can make that local, make that culture part of their games, how we can bring that and adapt it in. And it's not, uh, you know, it, it was a fast, like I said, it was fascinating experience and opened my eyes to the larger world. Um, and it's really helped me build a lot of bridges and understand how to deal with people. So there's another story that was quite funny that um, at Park City and uh, we had two guys that were working the slopes. And um, so one night after venue lockdown, they go up into the woods and they decide, you know what? It's in the middle of the night. It's pitch dark. We're going to light up a doobie. All right. So as soon as they start, the, they hit the lighter. They're hearing a voice in the background. I wouldn't do that if I were you. They're like, what the hell's going on? Right. And then it goes there. So they like, they thought there's just something in the herd in the wind. Start to light up again. Guys, I wouldn't do that if I were you. If I were you, I'd take yourselves right down the hill now. And so guys freaked out, ran down the hill. It was a Secret Service guy in, you know, in camouflage. <laughs> they were sitting right next to him. And he was just like, get get down. And I couldn't stop laughing. You know, these two guys just trying to smoke up. And can you imagine yourself here in, a, in, the, in the middle of the night, no streetlights, no nothing, a voice coming. I was thinking, you know, Friday the 13th kind of moment, you know, and Jason's out there. And I'm right, you know, oh, God, so many stories. Uh, well, hey, uh, I asked the question: Were they by the forbidden cabin? 
no, no, no. There was I didn't. I don't think there were either forbidden cabin. No, that was up. No, they were up in the mountain. Now, yeah, we're coming to the home stretch here. We've got our assignments right. for you. So the first assignment for you is to think of a song that whenever you hear it today, it makes you think of Salt Lake 2002. Funny. I was talking with Derek about this. I'm like, you know, Derek, for me, um, there's not really a song because for me, my memories are all about the friendships I've made, the experience that I had with everyone and enjoying just people. And then he's like, oh, but there were so many great songs, you know, Port of Call, Lazy Moon, this and that. And then at that point, it hit me that my song is going is Tequila by the Champs. And I'll, the reason why I say that one is the song and obviously Tequila means, well, I bet you will stir memories up for a lot of different people from different experiences. Um, you know, if you were to have Frederick or Elmer, I'm sure you mentioned tequila to them. They they can tell you some stories. Natalie will probably be able to, you know, or Kelly. Um, the for me, it was playing the game of Mexican dice or bluffing game. You know, you, you, so if you have a one and a two, you, you can bluff that one. That would be the trigger. If someone says, "I don't think you got Mexican." If you bluff and they're wrong, for them, it's a shot of tequila. And the amount of people that went down <laughs> to tequila was just incredible. The, you know, the, you can imagine drunk people just all over the place, tripping over themselves, laughing. What a, the number of times we've played that game and everyone's singing da -da 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 -da, tequila. For me, that was that's what it, that's what it reminded me of. Do you ever wonder who invents these games? Like... <laughs> Is it the uh, I, is it the beverage manufacturer? Hey, I know a way we can get people to drink a lot. Let's let's create this game. <laughs> hey, you know, I, you, you, your guess is as good as mine. But if people are saying, how many times someone's going to say this on television? You got to take a drink. Okay, you know, I, I don't know. Don't have. I, yeah, I don't. I don't want to imagine who can make up these games. Uh, it's probably games. you're right. It's probably a grassroots, uh, ground up effort. Well, you've <laughs> talked about Port of Call. You've talked about Green Street. You've mentioned. Lazy Moon. You've mentioned all these places. That takes me to my food question, right. uh, which could be food and drink. Um, but uh, is there a particular restaurant that you like to go to when you were there in Salt Lake? That's another question. I was actually chatting with Cindy Summers about uh, Cindy Summers Sherman. Um, we were talking about that and Scott Sedell and a few others and uh, Sally, Sally Goldman. And for me, I think for a lot of us, there was a place called Rusted Sun Pizzeria. Um, which was on South State, just near 80. Best pizza, because I think they came from New Jersey. and uh, Best pizza place. Uh, we would always try to go there at least once a week for lunch. Um, then, But also there was one in the spring, summertime. I used to like going, I think it was called Moose Lodge at Cottonwood Canyon. They had a nice little rooftop patio and you can have your lunch and just sit in the mountains and just take it in. It's great. That was, that was another good, really good spot. Um, and then, of course, uh, this wasn't – I wish he had a restaurant for this. Natalie's Jerk Chicken. I don't know if you ever had Natalie Moldover's Jerk Chicken, but that was the bomb. The best jerk chicken I've ever had. And I've always – I was like, Natalie, you're going to make jerk chicken again. When are you going to bring some more in? Come on. But, oh, she – oh, yeah. Good stuff for Natalie. Yeah, Natalie's Jerk Chicken, the Jamaican, and, uh, you know, bringing her Caribbean roots here to Salt Lake. 
I don't know if those restaurants are still around. If they are, I'll put them on my map on the po- yeah. on the not on the podcast on the website. If I had to choose one, it was Rusted Sun. If I had to choose one, well, and that's a high compliment coming from a New Yorker. If you can find a good pizza here in Salt Lake that meets your standards, then that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> and then I won't put Natalie's home address on there <laughs> for the German chicken choice, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> she'll love it. She'll love the shout out. Hopefully, people start calling it. Absolutely, yeah. Huge shout out to Natalie for the jerk chicken. Okay. To wrap us up, Roger, what is your quintessential Salt Lake 2002 feel-good goosebump moment? There was, you know, I know Crawley talked about the uh, the men sweeping at the half pipe. I know you mentioned that. That was a good one too. But again, for me, it's sometimes it's all on a more personal level, um, and. You know, we didn't get we, uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about it through one of the questions, but remember Matt Baker? I mean, um, Matt Walters. Matt Walters. Yeah, that sounds really familiar. He was working with apps. Um, he was a swimmer, happened to pass away in 2000. Uh, he was part of the slot team. And uh, I didn't get to know Matt. The pe- what happened? I mean, because it was also sudden what happened. But the people, the way the team rallied around Darlene, just rallied together to, you know, for his, for support, you know, not just to Darlene, but just as a team as a whole was incredible. And uh, that really, that gives me the goosebumps because that tells you, you know, we were really a team. Technology was really, really a solid team that just loved each other. And uh, yeah. So it's under a, unfortunately, a very morbid circumstance, but, you know, I, I take things a bit more personal than just a song or whatever. And, um, yeah, just seeing how the team rallied was incredible. Well, Roger, I really appreciate you sharing that memory with us. And again, I thank you for taking time on a late night Paris night, um, to, to join us, uh, now, Roger, if people want to learn more about the work that you're doing there in Paris or want to reconnect with you, social media, otherwise, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, well, you can. I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm on LinkedIn or just drop me an email at rogerandbaugmail.com. All right. Fantastic. Roger, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule with two small children. Uh, to come and join us. Hey, Chris, I, I, I want to just touch on one thing. It, I know Derek mentioned the run for the rings. Oh, yeah. He said he didn't know who won. I'll tell you, it was my team. <laughs> okay. Uh, All has my been team revealed. Won. But the thing was, it wasn't for drinking. And I know I'm telling. It's because we found out where the actual stickers are for the scoring. And we, 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 we built, I five-finger discounted it. That's how we won. We cheated. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. All right, Roger. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so yeah, much. Chris, absolutely pleasure. Thanks for getting me on. Uh, just listening to the podcast from the others was brought memory lane, man. It was great stuff and a wonderful work that you're doing doing this. Really well, thank cool. you. Thank you. It's been it's been a huge amount of fun. Mm-hmm.